Okay, I think we're time. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're doing chapters 11 and 12 today, and uh, they've got quite a bit of material in them. Um, but we'll notice something that, that um, a pattern that's going to parallel what we saw in the earlier chapters, where there were the judgments, the, the, the seals were, were opened and um, the judgments, at least the prelude to the judgments, began to be unfolded. And then we stopped, and we had the 144,000 on Mount Sinai and the multitude, which no one could number. So, which, which meant that as the judgment is beginning, it, it noted that the elect were sealed and were not going to be subject to judgment. So we have a similar thing here in chapter 11. Um, and so let, let's, we'll take a look at it and, and um, we'll just jump in and, and, and go from there. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Okay. So, this idea of measuring, uh, there is in Ezekiel chapter 40. You, you should know, as you, if you want to study, look into these things, that Ezekiel chapter 40 and beyond Remember, Ezekiel prophesies to Israel in exile about the time the temple is to be destroyed, and he prophesies it. He prophesies the departure of the presence from the temple, which leaves it open to destruction. But at the end of Ezekiel, he prophesies the rebuilding of a glorious temple. And it's a little bit cryptic, but, but um, this image of measuring the temple comes from Ezekiel. That's the biblical backdrop. And we won't get into the details. We could digress into that for a you know a whole half a year into Ezekiel. But just note, and I gave you that that reference. But the question for understanding here is where is the true temple now located in the context of Revelation? 
I mean, there's a way in which Jack pointed his heart. There's a way in which that could be true, but that's not what Revelation has told us. Where is it? Huh? I'm not going to answer this for you, so someone's going to have to, because if we've missed this, we've missed all the, the most important part we've come to is so it, far. Is it in heaven? Like, where do we learn that in Revelation? Because it'll come down from heaven. Where did we learn that in Revelation? What chapters? The beginning. Yeah. I'm not, not going to allow you to know. What's that? Good. Very beginning. Yeah, which chapters? No. Come on, don't 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 be like little kids in the chapel when you say, "What's the answer?" Jesus. 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 <laughs> you say to This is central to the whole framework of Revelation. What happens in chapter four just points your direction. Had another vision. What is John asked John to do? Open door in heaven. Yeah. Keep the scroll. He's asked to come up to the throne of God. Okay, well, what's, what is that throne? Where, how, would, how would God's throne relate to the true temple? That is the Sanctus Sanctorum. Is the true temple. Yeah, that is the true temple. Yeah. Where's the, so we've already yeah. seen the true temple. We've, we've been through this. John goes up to the true temple where Christ is now ascended. Today's Ascension Day. Where the church is present. The four and twenty elders with kings and priests. There, there they are. That's the and, temple. And the prayers of the saints. Yeah. So my point then, getting to 11, is when he says, rise and measure the temple of God, what's he measuring? Oh, the temple in heaven. He's measuring the temple that we've just seen in chapters 4 and 5. That's the temple. That's the true temple. Because that's where the, the cherubim are. Uh, that's where the... the, the God's glory is. That's all of the images we've seen in Revelation that relate to Mount Sinai and the thunder and the lightnings. That's where the temple is. So what about that building in Jerusalem? It was, but but how does what's its status now? But in relationship to what Christ has done, what's its status now? God's presence is no longer there. It's no longer there. Empty. Are, are God's people there? No. So he's measuring the temple, um, and the measuring is going to be for the sake of setting apart, and this is going to be set apart and not judged. It's an image very similar to... Um, to, to No, to, to marking of the... Of the of the elect back in chapter 7. Oh, right. 
suggestions are coming, so measure the temple so that we've already the the, the um, and this the epistle to the Hebrews in the New Testament goes at length to describe this that Christ does not enter. This is our our, our one of our daily authors verses for ascension died. Christ has not entered into holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself. That's where the true temple is now. And we, in the spirit, lift up our hearts and ascend, and that's where we are. So when he measures the true temple, that's where our our citizenship is in heaven. We're, we're but not just in some generic on a cloud, in this place, the fulfilled temple, where Christ is Lord before the throne of God, where the church lives, tabernacles, in that in, in in that sense. So the measuring of the temple here for to save it is not measuring the Jerusalem temple because it's not the temple anymore. They they have rejected the Messiah. Now that this is where he is, he's in the true temple in heaven. And that's where we are. So rise and measure the temple and those who worship there. That's God's people. Those that's the church. But leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So the old temple now has been shifted. It now is outside. And they would have thought that, you know, the, 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 the Jewish idea is here's the temple and only the only God's people can come into it those outside the court of the Gentiles, those who are outside the covenant until they come into it and shifted. Now, because the whole people of God has been redefined around the person of Jesus, those who are with him in the true temple in heaven are now, um, they are being measured and saved. And, and now the old covenant temple is the outer courts. And it's been given to be trampled by the Gentile for 42 months. The, the, it comes from Daniel. Um, I gave you a verse on that. Uh, I don't know if any of you actually look up these verses I send out. Does, it, does anybody? Because uh, I do, but I wasn't able to do yeah. my three. Okay. I don't think you have, they have to make complete sense now. They make cumulative sense over the years. You go back next time, you go, oh, yeah, now I see more. But Daniel talks about, and most people think of it as since um, seven is the number of completeness, um, 42 being um, 42 months being being half of seven years is an incomplete seven. And it's a time which symbolizes a time of tribulation in which evil and is allowed to have a certain preeminence because God's using it to judge. But it's a but that it's 42 and not seven means it's limited and controlled by God. What's that? Well, well, seven years. The, the, the forty-two months are like three and a half years. It comes. It comes from Daniel. He says times, time, and half a time. 
which ends up being a year, years, a year and half a year, cryptically three and a half years. Um, so 42 months is the same. It's not, it's not meant to be literal, although there may be some you know, applications in the first century. It's meant, to, it's meant to indicate a time when God is allowing evil to have a hand uh, to, to, as, a, as a part of his judgment he's allowing to take place. But it's limited, it's, it's determined by God and limited, and it will have an end. That's the basic point of, 40, of the 42. This is talking about the first century. This is talking about the events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem Temple in AD 70. And I, it, has, it has nothing to say about the second coming. It's, we're, we're, keep yourself rooted there. This is, this is that he's just measured the true temple in heaven. He's left out the outer court, which is now the old temple. It's going to be trampled by the Romans. That's, that's what he's being, that's what's being said. Pretty obviously. Once you dig deeply into the symbol. So, that's the first thing that's happened in this chapter, measuring the true temple and protecting it, leaving the old temple out. It's now like it's 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 now akin to what the old covenant court of the Gentiles was, not holy, not in the inner sanctum. And verse three, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of the prophecy. And they have power over water to turn them in, waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. Hold on that thought for a second. So there's a lot of, of uh, images here. Is there anything that you remember in the Old Testament that comes from these images? Elijah calling down fire. Elijah called down fire. What else did Elijah do that pertains to this verse? The drought. The drought. There's a proclaim the drought. How, where would waters turn to blood? Yeah, Moses and plague. Yeah, the water blood. Um, so to get the symbolism here. Because it's so easy to get lost in in trying to be literal. Let's start with two witnesses. So what's what what did the um, what did the Torah say about a crime? There had to be two witnesses. Two witnesses. I gave a verse on uh, Deuteronomy seventeen. 
Uh, and also, when we understand that witness language from the Torah, you know, that you no one will be put to death except in the presence of two or three witnesses. And then the witnesses themselves had to throw the first stone. You couldn't just mail it in. Yeah. But when, John, when Jesus in John's gospel is, is saying things like, you know, the Father testifies about me and the works I do bear witness, this is all legal, judicial language that comes from the Torah. And, and so the two witnesses represent the prophetic word that is the, the testimony of God calling people to repent. The testimony of God saying, Jesus is the Messiah, repent. And all this symbolism here is just a, a way of understanding. It's in harmony with the prophetic witness of Moses and Elijah and John the Baptist. The um, two olive trees and two lampstands come specifically from Zechariah. Um, there are images there that, and again, you, you see why when we started Revelation, I said that um, uh, we could do this forever. We'd go spend a half a year in Zechariah and figure out what he's talking about that relates to this. Um, But in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, the two lampstands and olive trees. There in Zechariah, the, the two lampstands and the olive trees represented um, uh, the king and the priest, uh, Zerubbabel and uh, Jehozadak. Those, so they were the two, all, the two olive trees, the, the anointed ones, whose who's, who's witness, who were called to witness to the people. So the point here is that there's, that, that, um, that to put it in a kind of summary way, measure the true temple, protect it. So it's in heaven, but those who are on earth, the church in Jerusalem has been measured and protected from what's coming because they don't really live there. Their, their identity is in the heavenly place. But the earth dwellers, and this is something that Revelation picks up on, rejoice, O heavens, and, you know, um, and but woe to you, earth. This is the juxtaposition. Even though the Christians live physically in Jerusalem and the, the Jewish leadership is rejecting Jesus, lives physically in Jerusalem, the church really tabernacles in heaven. That's where it lives. So it can rejoice with the heavenly victory. That's how we, with our faith, today is Ascension Day, we rejoice because we dwell in heart and mind, thither ascend, and with him continually dwell, as the colleague says. Um, so we don't really live here. And part of the perspective of the Christian life that is triumphant has to begin to enter into that reality that our true life is not here. And most of our true misery results from the fact that we think it's all about here. So, he's measured the true temple in heaven, but it, but it has people live here in it. They're measured. The, the old temple is in the court. Now we're going to have prophetic word because, because it's going to call people to repent. That's the prelude to, to judgment. And... Um, and so, the witness of, the, of, of Jesus... Uh, John the Baptist of the church represents the, 
is represented by their two witnesses. It's a continuation of the prophetic witness of God throughout the scriptures. And it's testimony that is binding, and therefore by which, so if, if I give testimony that this is true and, and you don't accept it and repent, you're now liable to the judgment that's coming. So when they finish their testimony, verse 7, um, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Now, we already had um, last time that this star, chapter 9, a star fell from heaven to him who gave him the key of the bottomless pit. And a lot of these images repeat themselves in Revelation. This is clearly the evil one who comes and he's allowed to, to, to evil's allowed to have some reign for a while in this period of chaos and judgment. And so here, the, again, the, the, um, the beast that um, ascends out of the bottomless pit, he's gone down, he'll come out and make war. So God doesn't kill the prophets, but the powers of evil do. But God allows it as a testimony, and they will be vindicated just like Jesus was vindicated. He allowed it. Jesus said, this is, this is your hour and the power of darkness to which he has submitted so the church's witness, and this witness here, um, it includes what he's talking about, includes the testimony of Jesus, and it's perpetuated in the church. We kind of get this here, so let's let's take a look at this. Um, he says, um, make war against them, and overcome them, and kill them. So the, so the beast kills the false, the, the, the two witnesses, which represents the prophetic witness. And it basically here would be, the, the sense that, um, and we'll read the next verse, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. This is the first clear narrative transference that we get, where Jerusalem is equated with two cities destined for judgment, Egypt in the, in the plagues and Sodom for their disobedience. Can I ask you a question? So could the could the, the witnesses and those who are killed, could that represent the church that was being martyred at that time? Yes. Um, but let, 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 okay. so, so let, let's, um, the, the, yes. And there's a lot of levels in the, uh, which this can work. Let's read on a little okay. bit here. He says, um, then, those, then those from the people's tribes, tongues, nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. So there's a kind of, as a symbolic desecration, because being buried was part of the, the, the one he wanted to. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Um, you remember what Jesus said? We've had this uh, gospel for Eastertide, uh, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. The very same thematic thing here. Jesus, they, they've killed the Messiah, and the world represented by the, really here by the alliance in um, between Roman power and Jewish leadership, which was threatened by the prophetic word. 
So we, we've, we've killed the prophet, and now there's a rejoicing, um, because the troublemaker's out of the way. And you find this in Acts, uh, uh, or next in Luke's Gospel, where uh, Herod and Pilate make peace over the condemnation of Jesus. And so the idea is that they, they, they rejoice, and um, but, in verse 11, after three and a half days, the breath of life entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. The resurrection, both of Christ, but also of his body through the gift of the Spirit and the enduring witness. So they thought they killed the witness, and turns out after Pentecost came and the Spirit is raised up from the dead, and now you've got Peter preaching in the street, people listening, and you got things happening. You thought you killed it, but you didn't kill it. It's back. Multiply. So that's the idea. Multiply. <laughs> yeah. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud. Their enemies saw them. Now, we have to stay with this image of ascension that, we, that we've talked about, that, that we are ascended. So, so we, we, I get, um, we've, we've, Ephesians 2.6 says that Christ has raised us up and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Who are raised and were sent in us where we dwell. And that's the idea tying back to the verse 1 of chapter 11. They ascended in a cloud. Their enemies saw them. In other words, they're safe in the true temple. And though they try to kill them, they can't. Physical death doesn't undo the protection that God has given them with the seal on the foreheads and the measuring. All that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus says, and he says, uh, no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. This is all kind of Johannine imagery, that the elect are safe, no matter what the world does to them. And come up here, verse 12, bears a striking resemblance to what John was told in verse chapter 4. Come up here. In, in his physical body, yes. But again, this is playing on the idea that we are risen and again Ephesians 2 6 Christ has raised us from the dead and made us to sit in the heavenly places in Christ so the Bible says no we've ascended with him that's where our identity and presence truly is it's, it's, a, it's a spiritual ascendance and when he comes again to judge the world They'll, we will now dwell in his, his presence in, in a physical resurrected body. But now it's only, only um, well, there's, there's only Jesus, and then there's a tradition of whether 
Mary was taken to, to heaven in her body, which is a, a tradition, not a biblical dogma for us. But obviously, it's and not. Elijah. Elijah. Yeah. Elijah. Yeah, that's right. But the difference between Elijah uh, and uh, as with um, Enoch. Enoch, Enoch yeah. yeah, is that they didn't die. So um, it's not quite sure what that's all about. Uh, so there's a lot we don't know. And we can't say it's all life, but this is essentially what, from the, the basics of our of our belief, yes, Christ is bodily ascended into heaven. We, in the spirit, spiritually ascend with him. In all this... Um, they put him to death, but they rose. It's very baptismal imagery, where we die with Christ in baptism, which you also raise through faith. So this resurrection imagery has these different horizons uh, of, of um, baptism of, of people who are martyrs, who, who, for whom can't, who still have life, and ultimately then the resurrection of the body on the last day. And come up here, and they ascended to heaven in a cloud, their enemies saw them. In verse 13, in that same hour, there was a great earthquake. that remind you of anything? Yes. Jesus on Good Friday. And a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, the 7,000 here is an interesting... Um, Reversal. Where else do we have seven thousand in the Bible? Where? That was five. This is seven. Um, is Elijah? Um, Elijah was complaining to God about that all the all the faithful people were gone. I'm the only one. Well, I'm the only one. And and he's and, and God said to him, No, I retained myself seven thousand who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Wow. So this is a kind of twist on that where 7,000 now are judged for bowing the knee to Baal. Um, and, but, but also it says the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. That the purpose, it, the thing to remember here is that the purpose of this um, prophetic witness is not judgment but salvation. That's why God sends his son. That's why there's a, a, a witness given. It's not that God wants to nail people. He wants, but this is the truth. So the witness, and so here we get that the rest gave, were afraid, gave glory to God of heaven. Some people begin to repent and believe when they see. Is there any significance in a tenth of the city fell? I think it's a portion, a you know, minor portion. And we do see in the early church that with the early church's preaching, a number of people repented. The church grew. So it, there was a growing remnant of believers. And this is um, something that the Acts of the Apostles really plays on, that the church is the continuation as the body of Christ of the presence of the risen Christ in time. 
and it, it continues on his ministry. Second woe was passed. Behold, the third woe was coming. Then the seventh angel sounded. Blew his trumpet and um, There, there's some correspondence here in some of the um, uh, writings with this Feast of Trumpets and um, Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets in Israel, and even the idea that, that trumpets were blown to celebrate the beginning of the world. And sometimes that was associated with Rosh Hashanah. So when the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on the throne fell on their faces and worshiped God. Um, this is in many ways, a replay of, of the same image we had back in chapter 5. The lamb as though it had been slain, opening the scroll, dominion. So, biblically, all that is necessary to be accomplished for God's new creation has been accomplished in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So when this says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, it even now is that way. That's what we mean when we say Jesus is Lord. And it's, it's really made too wimpy when it becomes your personal Lord and Savior to save you from your personal sins only. It is certainly that. But no, he's the Lord of the world. And everybody's accountable to him. And that's the gospel. Jesus is Lord. The kingdoms have become. He has won them by his death and resurrection. He is Lord, and he's ruling, and he's going to come again to, to finalize, but he's in control now. And all these things like letting the, the devil out for 42 months, he's letting, he's letting that happen, controlling it for his purpose, and then he'll lock him back out because Jesus is Lord. And, that, and so this is not, in verse 15, entirely a future prophecy, though it's much like what I, I'm, you know, this tension in the Christian life between the measure of our faith that we have now in living in Christ, having eternal life, being seated with Christ, and the degree to which that's not yet finished. It's the same thing here. The kingdoms have become, of course, they're not fully yet there, but because the work hasn't been completed, but it's done. And if we have real faith, even about our own status, we know, yeah, we're seated with Christ. We don't have to be afraid of anything. Well, why are we? Because we don't have perfect faith yet. His presence in the world kind of pulled back people in the Absolutely, it does. 
Absolutely, the preaching of the gospel has a restraining force on the power of evil. Absolutely, in this case. When I, I, I mean, I, I don't even, you know, I, I even think in our culture with a lot of things that are, um, you know, we, we have a rise of evil. We see it. And it's, it, it's coincided with the receding of the church. It's not as, it's not as powerful. It doesn't, it, it's, it's, um, uh, so yeah, I think it's so, absolutely a connection with that. This is a time of tribulation. Yeah, I mean, there's a sense in which the, um, the Christian life always has this um, sense of going through trials in the hope of this ultimate vindication. It's characterized by triumphantly doing so unafraid of the consequences of the, the temporal consequences because we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, you have to agonize through that in your life for prayer. Sometimes you feel down, sometimes you feel up, and sometimes you see it better than other times. But whether you feel it or not, to hold on to it and to behave as though that were the central reality of your life, that's what faith is. And he shall reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who sat before the throne, verse 16, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, right from chapter 5 again, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So the new theme here in chapter five, God was praised for his creation, first in chapter four, in chapter five for redemption, now he's being praised for judgment, for his true and just judgments that he's enacted. And again, you have these tensioned time horizons because there's a sense in which we don't fully see it. But Jesus said himself in John's gospel, the ruler of this world is judged. The judgment's already been pronounced. It needs to work itself out in time. And it always does. Why do you think what when we pray, you know, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? I mean, I know we could take years to talk about that too. Like how is that, you know, we're not meant to be, like you just said in mass, changing the world. Here we can't change it, but we're still seated with Christ in heaven, but we're still praying that his kingdom reign obviously be in us. You know, that because we're, we're, we're witnesses in the world for the kingdom. That's what our lesson for Ascension Day. And we're supposed to be faithful witnesses of, of the heavenly because we're witnesses of what we want. His kingdom comes then through our proclamation. And, and as his will is done in you know the church and, and around the places where where and that, that, right that action. by action, by action, but it'll come fully when he comes again. Yeah, okay, I was thinking the new heavens and the new earth. 
by being witnesses, we are effectively Well, and again, the witnesses, notice the correspondence to what we just read, two witnesses. And our witness will not always be welcomed. And even now, there are significant martyrdoms, especially in Africa. And our, but the only way to conquer evil is by the word and the faithful witness. And, and so one of the, that, that's, that's why it's important to be a faithful witness. Verse 19, the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of the covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, earthquake, and great hail. The whole point of the ark of the covenant here is, is to highlight that God's presence is no longer in Jerusalem. If the, if the ark is seen in the true temple in heaven, that's where God is. The ark is truly Christ. But that's, that's, I think, what that means, that they're going in the Ark of the Covenant. So it was seen in that heavenly realm, not, not, and, and all these lightnings, noises, thunderings, the great earthquake is right from Mount Sinai again. Um, It's important here to bear in mind, I suppose, with this idea of is Philippians uh, chapter two. Um, which is that, uh, therefore, God has highly exalted him given the name which is above every other name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, the threefold division of the Ten Commandments, uh, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians um, chapter 2, verse 5 and following, 5 through 11. Um, he has exalted him now. That's where he is. He reigns as Lord now. And so this is the fulfillment of the, co- of the, the, the inauguration of the New Covenant, the fulfillment of Sinai, the, the new creation. And that's why all of the weather phenomenon that we saw on Mount Sinai is now seen here. Lightnings, noises, thunderings, earthquakes, great hail. All right, chapter 12. Now a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Um, Can you, let's just first start with Bible and woman. Where's the first way that that, that some sense that a woman giving birth is going to have a a role in salvation. Where's the first verse in the Bible that happens? Genesis. Eve. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You know, that there'll be enmity between the, between the, the serpent and the woman. Uh, it shall bruise your heel, you shall bruise his head, for, which is the seed of the woman will bruise the head, or, or in, in, in the more developed biblical language, crush the head of the serpent under his feet. 
So there's that woman. Where else? Can we think of another passage where um, a sign is associated with a woman giving birth? Yeah. Isaiah. Uh, where the Lord, therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. You call his name Emmanuel. So the whole idea of um, and then there's there is um, this whole birth image and birth pangs being being likened unto the tribulation of this time for the church, the great tribulation. That the church will emerge as a new people of God through this time of great tribulation, which are birth pangs, and their birth pangs, they're giving birth to something new and good. It's not just going to be destruction. A garland of 12 stars, lots of ways we could go with that. Obviously, we think about for us the 12 apostles, just sort of, uh, or, or the 12 tribes, or there's also some astrological phenomenon that is sometimes associated with. But it could be a lot of times in the Bible they play together in mysterious ways. There's a glorious woman. And the image of the woman here uh, and throughout this passage, it is clearly in the first instance, well, it's, it's Israel epitomized in Mary, who just as Jesus fulfills the, um, the covenant by being faithful where the first man was not, so Eve... Uh, brings this man into the world by her faith in the place where Eve was not faithful. She hears the word and she says yes, and that's Israel's vocation, to say yes to God. But Eve and Israel said no. So Mary is, is therefore, a, she not, she's a historical figure, but she also epitomizes the vocation of Israel, which she fulfills in giving birth to the Messiah. And then the church always finds this kind of identity and connection to Mary because we also are called to say yes to the word of God and allow the word to come and dwell within us and allow that life to grow in us. So the woman is Israel, Mary, church. They're, they're overlapping images uh, of, of, of woman here. Isn't it a connection back to the, the original sin as well because God said you're going to now bring four children Pain. Yeah. So it's yes. Yeah. So the labor pains now are are become pains that bring forth a new creation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yes. That's a very good point. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. This image comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 3 through 7. 
The dragon appears a few places in the Bible. There are different images for for the evil one. The dragon or the beast uh, image is, again, um, the image of subhumanity, of beastliness. Gave, gave up his, his exalted heavenly status and became creaturely and beastly. Verse 4, he drew, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Just the evil one, the idea of, of, of leading a heavenly rebellion. A third is a lot, but not most. A limited rebellion. Um, and then let's think for a minute about the images in the Bible of, of where... There's an attempt to to kill the seed of the woman. Where do we first find that in the Bible? Moses. Moses. Yeah. And the holy innocence. So, so in in Egypt, um, Pharaoh, being afraid of the burgeoning population of Israel, and Josephus says that the tradition was that he had word that a deliverer would be born to Israel and that's why that's another reason why he started throwing all the male babies into the water but he could not because God's sovereign he, he could not touch the male child and in the holy innocence these are tragic things but it, he could not thwart the devil cannot thwart the will of God in these matters he comes down, drives the third, I'm going to devour, but he can't. Because God is sovereign, and God's going to accomplish what he accomplishes. She bore a male child who was, who was to rule. And, and this also makes the, the point of the connection between Herod and the evil one, and Pharaoh and the evil one, that when those who, who oppose God's people that these are the spiritual realities behind their, their actions. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's Psalm 2. And her child was caught up to God on his throne. A very quick tour through life, death, resurrection, ascension. But I saw some verse the other day we were reading morning or evening prayer. It says, these things are somewhere. Must be fulfilled that I may fulfill the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Right. And I just hadn't seen that before. Like, that's yeah, that's so Luke, cool. Yeah, Again, Luke's gospel. Yeah, have you seen he, that? He's fulfilling all of all the what was said in the Psalms as well. I didn't, I didn't realize it was the Psalms. Yeah. But if you look at... Um, the early preaching in Acts is a good study of the Psalms. That the number of a number of uh, of the of the texts that Peter preaches on or others, uh, Psalm 16, "You will not leave my soul in Hades, or allow your holy one to see corruption." He brings that out. Um, Psalm 2 here clearly is is picks up the whole theme of this chapter where the nations rage. But but God has set his upon his holy oil. He, he is, thou art my son, today I've begotten you. 
dire meaning, and so all these themes are all brought out there. And Jesus on the cross, why have that whole psalm? It's like if he's nodding, like go look there, because you see, realize he said this psalm, so he said, Then verse 6, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. They should feed her there 1,260 days. So we have this period um, of, of 42 when evil would reign. It's corresponding now to the protection God is going to afford to the seed of the woman who is Jesus. But again, remember, the literalness of the body of Christ. It is his body which is protected. And so that 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 just means that that all these are images of protection of God's people from evil. Not and, and interestingly again, not from death per se, but from being able to be overcome by the evil one. Yeah, rest. <laughs> and and where she fled in the wilderness, she had a place prepared by God to feed her. One thousand two hundred sixty is also hearkens to Elijah, running from Jezebel, was also fed by ravens by the brook, and, and and that whole that whole provision in the wilderness kind of thing. Look for that same time. No, it was. I can't remember how long it was. Probably forty days, uh, corresponding to the forty-two months of evil. Um, so, the evil will be allowed to reign, but God's people will be protected for that same amount of time. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Now, this is the consequence of the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Christ is Lord. And now there's the, the, the we'll get into it here, but the accuser doesn't have the place. Before he had a place because he could make a case. But now that God, Christ, and, and has been justified and God's people have been justified in him, we're, we're kicking him out. But notice that it's not Jesus kicking him out, because Jesus is not the opposite of the devil. Jesus is God. The, the opposite of the devil is Michael the archangel. That's his counterpart. He's the heavenly general who, who on the strength of Jesus' victory, cleans out heaven. The devil and his angels. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent, uh, they did not prevail, nor was the place found for them in heaven any longer. The dragon and his angels couldn't, were not strong enough to stay in heaven. They, they, got, they got beat. The great dragon was cast out. Notice the identities here. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan. All these are brought to you, that serpent from Genesis, all connected there in this verse who deceives the whole world, but he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then he heard a loud voice saying, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. 
for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Where do we get that image in the Old Testament? Devil's Job, accuser, Job. Job. <laughs> Just like you know, and and so he's finding a reason that Job should be should be uh, found wanting. So back to verse seven. Again, one of the problems of Revelation is how we understand what's in heaven in relationship to earthly chronology. So, the, but the point is, however, however it happens, how we conceive of it, it result it is a result of the cross. Christ, Christ. God's up here, and you can see all of the timelines. So, for example, it says in uh, New Testament that, that, that Jesus is the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. But wait a minute, it didn't happen until 2,000 years ago. How does that work? Now, he's been cast down, and they overcame him. That is, the believers in Christ overcame the evil one by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. The blood of the Lamb cleanses us from all sin. Therefore, the devil has no case. The word of our testimony is the way we hold on to God's word and resist all of the temptations that surround us all the time. And we do that until death. In other words, nothing in this world can be more important than that to us. Um, so we in, in the spiritual life as we face temptations we stumble we fall but as long as we get back up and, and be cleansed and continue on so the abandonment of faith and the rejection. This is something we are studying Hebrews at morning prayer because that's what he's talking about. The early believers, some who were, were were under the face of this tribulation, were tempted to go away. And uh, so, as long as we hold on to it, uh, we can't be defeated. And in that Philippians passage we were just in, I kept reading. I mean, this is good news translation. I just dropped it, but said. Uh, and because God is always at work in you to make you willing and able to do his own purpose. That was something. <laughs> Keep on working with fear and trembling to complete your salvation because God is always at work in you to make you willing and able to obey his own purpose. 
enables us to have that faith. Yeah. yeah. The verse 12, therefore, this, this is the that sort of where we dwell verse. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. That's us, because we participate in this victory, as we've abundantly celebrated at Easter and through Easter tide, and now in Ascension. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. The devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. That's the, the part that's outside the true temple, in the outer court, not protected. And that's where judgment is open to judgment. Now when the dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of an eagle that she might go into the wilderness and her place where she is nourished for time and times and half the time in the presence of the serpent. That's language from Daniel. Again, different ways of talking about this three and a half year period. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Seems to be sort of an image there of, you know, that the creation participating in redemption also aids the elect. So, a similar Old Testament in Cain and Abel, where the blood cries out, creation is helping man too. Right. Creation has a sense of justice to it. That's right. Ravens came and fed Elijah. But that's still earth and nature. But the earth helped the woman, swallowed up the flood, which the dragon spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring to keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. So in a certain way, this is clearly referring to, you know, a, a, a first century reality of this. However, clearly, the rest of her offspring, this is, this is just descriptive of the ongoing Christian battle of staying in the true temple under the protection of God and but yet being being, you know, having evil come after us and. It is why we stay, it's why our life of prayer is so central to stay in Christ. And in Christ, we have the resources and power to resist. When we drift away from our prayer and our connection to the body of believers, we become more vulnerable, you know, to, to, to attack. We occasionally slip and fall. We have to come back and, you know, and, and, and reconnect. But that's the idea. This is the spiritual battle. But we should understand, this is why I think that people understand if you try to understand what you're going through in the Christian life is merely a rational thing. There's an irrational spiritual component to it. And you see it in the world, even in some of the things we've seen recently. What was the motive? Evil doesn't really have a rational motive. It wants to vindicate itself at, at any cost, and it doesn't matter what it does. If you try to explain, you try to understand it, 
it, you know, it, it, you, you, you just have to be, you know, so, but the power of our, uh, the blood that cleanses us from sin, the, the power of our testament, holding on to the word of God, and, 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 and per- persevering in that is what keeps us safe from that kind of attack. And even if it's not physical death, like, 